Welcome to this edition of the Cooler Report and Weekly Review. This is Dominic Akula along with Paul Harrell. Cast that is coming to you uh, being recorded on Monday, the 18th of September. Of uh, September, yes. Uh, and with the top 10 articles that um, were chosen by the readers of the Akula Report that appeared on the Akula Report last week. They clicked on articles, read them, and so we tallied them up and pre- present the top 10 that they clicked on that was that they found on the Equal Report. So if you want to be a part of that, you can read the Equal Report daily. Just go to theequalreport.com and uh, read through the headlines and see if something interests you. Click on it and read it. Uh, the newsletter comes out on the next day, so that's on Tuesday, the 19th of September. And the, these uh, top 10 will be there. They're hyperlinked and ready to just be clicked on. You can read through them very quickly. Uh, or as I like to say, uh, maybe there's something of interest uh, such that you want to save it for yourself. You may want to share it with a small group that you meet with or a Sunday school class or send it to forward it, the whole uh, thing to some friends. And we'll be glad that you would do that. But the main thing is, uh, Paul and I uh, just give having this advance notice uh, some time to discuss these matters and bring these articles uh, sort of tease for uh, us all, uh, you know, what's what's coming up. So, uh, Paul, we're uh, another week and another opportunity to um, look through these articles. And, you know, we, you and I talk offline. We say, I wonder if there is going to be in these top 10 sort of some themes. And I think we're going to see some major themes that all these articles have, even though they were published on different days at different times and, and uh, so forth. Yeah. The, uh, the Aquila report readers have a will of their own and they, they shape this list. And um, there's certainly a a thread of consistency here, culture, the church, you know, what, what's the future look like? It's, it's a really exciting list. It's one of my favorite this year. I actually, actually, and this general statement too, Paul, I would say that this is a, uh, one that shows that what's being discussed and what is being appreciated, at least in terms of being read, uh, it shows that there's a desire, um, flowing through these articles and then, and then the, in the readers, uh, for genuine renewal, reformation, um, you know, uh, you know, a, f- a forward-looking type of ministry in local churches as well as denominations, and I, I find that very, uh, I find it very helpful, I, I encouraging as to what the future holds, especially since the last four, five, six years, we've had so so many internal debates. Uh, not that they have ceased altogether, but uh, for the most part, there was they were intense dealing with inward things because they had to be dealt with. And so we had to take a pause from the forward to, you know, deal with them. And I think we've seen a little bit of a turnaround. Some say, okay, what's now around the next corner? So Paul, why don't we begin with you reading the top 10, uh, 10 through six, I'll read five through one, and we'll begin our discussion. That sounds good. So number 10 from last week, we've got Murray Campbell, Richard Dawkins asks an important question. And here is my answer. Number nine, Kim Riddlebarger uh, writes uh, a primer on reformed liturgics lessons from the past applied in the present part one. Number eight, the Mormonization of American Christianity. This by Shane Rosenthal. 
Number seven, we have Jonathan Van Maren back on the list. Why you shouldn't use preferred pronouns in other ideological language. Number six, we have Andy Nacelli. Don't believe culture's lies about men and women. Great. Well, number five is by Jacob Leeming, uh, A Biblical Love in a World Gone Mad. Uh, number uh, four, Can Mainline Protestantism Be Rebuilt by Aaron Wren? Uh, then next one by uh, Hans Fine, The Crushing Yoke of a Deconstructionist Pastor. Uh, then number two is uh, by Carl uh, Truman, Why Most uh, Anglican clergy now approve gay marriage and what this means for the future of the church. And then number one is by Stephen uh, uh, um, Wolf and says, um, which is the rise and fall of the evangelical elite. So that's by Stephen Wolf. And this is a sort of a taking a 30,000 foot analysis of what's happened basically since 2000 to the present time and some of the things and he recounts gives a good uh, brief overview because it's not a long article but uh, he packs a lot in it with regard to the rise and fall of the evangelical elite uh, he mentions i was converted to christ in the year 2000 leaving behind my atheistic contrarianism i entered american protestantism completely unaware that something unique was occurring in the 1980s, Calvinism reemerged as a potent intellectual force in evangelicalism, spearheaded by Baptist John Piper and John MacArthur and Presbyterian R.C. Sproul. In the early 2000s, young Gen X seminary graduates and writers who were influenced by these men became, uh, became these men became a movement known as the Young, Restless, and Reformed, or YRR, Young, Restless, and Reformed. New uh, personalities and publishers emerged and megachurches were formed centered on Calvinistic doctrines of salvation. These baby boomers and Gen X Calvinists achieved a good deal of the uh, theological unity. So that sets the scene. So 2000 to the uh, present time, uh, there were two uh, major groups that came together that uh, sort of coalesced these things. And uh, Wolf mentions these, they cross uh, their cross and intergenerational unity was most evident in the Together for the Gospel, though it's sometimes T, the number 4G, T4G, Together for the Gospel Conferences, which began in 2006 and was held every other year. It was organized by four friends already established in their own circles in the pre-social media days. Mark Deaver, from, uh, who was Baptist, Ligon Duncan, Presbyterian, Albert Moeller, Baptist, and C.J. Mahaney, Charismatic along with uh, three invited speakers, uh, again, uh, Piper, MacArthur, and Sproul. Uh, what unified them were beliefs in biblical inerrancy, male headship of families, and the five points of Calvinism. So he said, uh, I attended the 2008, which would have been then the second of these uh, conferences, of uh, Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, seeing the men I read for several years, uh, joyfully sitting on panels, together uh, despite their important differences their togetherness uh was real but it was also an entirely product of the time it was in the middle of what reformed writer aaron wren has labeled the 20-year neutral world and wren 
gives us three things, the, the affirmative world, the neutral world, and then now we're in that negative world in terms of where the church is in relationship to, to culture. So that's what he's referring to in that uh, model that Aaron Wren gave us. Um, and he's going to, we'll see that in an article coming up here in a moment. So most everyone in these evangelical circles was political conservative or a typical evangelical voter against abortion, homosexual marriage. Nevertheless, on political questions, the young restless reform leaders approach politics very differently uh, and so forth. And he mentions that. I won't uh, go into that and give you that immense. But uh, the other group that developed and not only together for the gospel, but it was the gospel coalition also was founded around the same time, around 2005, exemplified this approach, a coalition of like-minded, mostly neo-Calvinist churches. Uh, the, um, the gospel coalition served mainly to platform rising stars and to establish an elite evangelicalism. Uh, the TGC, or the, the gospel coalition, Longtime and current editor uh, Colin uh, Hansen, who wrote the book Young, Restless, and Reformed in 2008, credited Keller's work, Tim Keller's work, on cultural apologetics as a driver of the mo movement. Subsequently, the target engagement audience for the, get the Gospel Coalition and neo-evangelical apologetics in general uh, was, has always been urbanites or at least non-rural residents. So the question is with these two groups sort of coalescing together they seem to have at least the same um, uh, you know undergrounding is the um, question is now what what began to happen uh, by in late 2018 however just after he spoke at the uh, together for the gospel conference MacArthur took a vehement stand against social justice calling it a distortion of the gospel he signed a statement on social justice and the gospel. So that was a new entry into this whole discussion in, that was part of, uh, within at least broad evangelicalism. And uh, so he was not invited back for the next two conferences after that in 2020 or 2022. By 2021, the social justice movement in the church had fizzled out, partly from the bruising that so many received from it, but also from embarrassment of it all. As expected, many of those who were platformed were indeed influenced by critical race theory and liberation theology. Some began affirming female ministers on the gender side, academics such as Kristen Dumez, author of Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, came to, quote, affirm homosexual sexual relationships. Many uh, young restless reform megachurches have been huge, uh, seeing huge, huge splits over racial uh, justice preaching. And finally, after years of impoverished reasoning and embarrassment and after embarrassment together, uh, the gospel coalition has become irrelevant and unimportant as a well-deserved object of relentless mockery. So that's one of the, the falls that uh, took place. Uh, <clears throat> by their own admission, many evangelical elites rarely, if ever, interact with the mostly white evangelical base. In 2018, the then editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, wrote uh, that his, quote, elite evangelical crowd were shocked to learn that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. Most evangelical Christians like me, he exclaimed, uh, who said, exclaimed, who are these people? I know hardly anyone, let alone any evangelical Christian who voted for Trump, he wrote. 
So that became one of those issues. And then in 2022, Together for the Gospel held their final conference. Uh, the negative world broke them. Uh, now, the negative world is that Aaron Wren model of the positive world, the neutral, and now the negative. So we're in that uh, framework here. Uh, the negative world broke them. The coalition is over, and the Young Restless Reform Movement is dying a slow death. It is now plain to everyone that the uh, the uh, obsquiousness um, of the evangelical elite to their hostile secular secularist counterparts is harmful to the country, to churches, and to the events of the gospel. The evangelical elite know that they are in decline. So that's where he sort of takes us. So basically, he says the energy of the American evangelical church is now on the evangelical, on the Christian right and have become emboldened in their efforts to return America to their, its heritage of faith. Uh, they affirm the goodness of Christian nations as assertive Christian politics and the predominant heritage of faith in American history and the like. So uh, Stephen Wolf in this article basically say, here's the rise and then the fall within not even just about 20 years, uh, maybe less, uh, something that rose and raised and fall, especially when you also include the reference to Colin Hansen's book on the young restless and reformed and uh, how they were, how, how the uh, got together for the gospel as well as the gospel coalition impacted that whole movement of young restless and reformed. And so this is quite a history, gives us an overview, doesn't go into all the nitty gritty detail, <clears throat> but it gives us <clears throat> the broad landscape, uh, Paul, of seeing where the church was in the first two decades of the 21st century. I think this is one of the best articles uh, really of, of the entire year. And um, it's one of the best articles I've ever read that just really summarizes where we have been. And um, I, that it, it's just so spot on. Um, and I, I really particularly like, you know, when he talks about um, the uh, Tim Keller and, you know, where, where he came from. Uh, in terms of his his movement, what it was uh, kind of based on, it was kind of based on this uh, political uh, pietism, if you if you will. He says under Keller's influence, the young, restless, and reformed era was not retreatist, but activist, pursuing cultural engagement. Now, it's important to note, Dominic, uh, that this was all going on while we were still in neutral world. Christianity was still considered neutral. And not negative. Okay, so that that that's that's an, well, it's an important context here. Pursuing cultural engagement by demonstrating that orthodox faith is the key to to coherent, good, and complete life. The purpose of public theology was more evangel uh, evangelistic than political, and most adherents, even if they disapproved of neutrality language, still approved of the possibility of debate within a shared public square. Again, neutral. That is entering public discourse offered Christians. The chance not so much to win politically as to demonstrate their uh, serenity through a politics that appeared attractive, heavenly, and pleasantly aloof and devoid of anxiety, overreaction, and anger. To the urban liberal, this was a quirky but safe political stand that checked the boxes on most social justice concerns. Hence, Christians followed Keller's approach. And then when they did that, they could downplay or overlook questions of political power and focus instead on verbal and aesthetic persuasion. And again, this was all when we're still in the neutral world. The principle regarding politics, especially for followers of Keller, was that political commentary and activism 
was an extension of witness, not fundamentally a means for good political outcomes. Every decision in ministering the witness or this witness tended to defer to whether it resulted in making Christianity attractive to non-believer, non-believing urbanites. Politics was an extension of cultural apologetics built around authenticity as opposed to the kitschy, suburban, seeker-sensitive movement of the 90s, which you know, we, we can all uh, you know, say that seeker-sensitive churches are not a good thing. The assumption was that secular people will become dissatisfied with their secular identities on uh, uh, offer and, and uh, look for coherent alternative. This approach made sense in that neutral world that no longer exists where the Christian identity was one viable alternative among competing identities. Okay, and then we skip down. We have a lot of stuff that happened during that time. Um, he, uh, he writes, it's obvious now, looking back at the post-9-11 and pre-Obergfell era, Obergfell is the de- gay marriage decision, that the leftward drift of this movement was inevitable. Okay, so then we get to the end of Aaron Wren's neutral world that happened sometime around, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 2015 when that Obergfell decision uh, happened. And then, of course, Donald Trump won in uh, 2016, right before the Brexit movement succeeded over in Europe. So. So then you skip down a little further. So um, uh, we went into we went into negative world where Christianity is now assumed to be negative, meaning Christians are now the problem. But here in the in this evangelical circle, this politics, this Keller based politics as a witness model stayed the same. Okay, that has remained in place as we've shifted to the negative world. And so uh, Stephen Wolf writes, with the LGBTQ becoming a social dogma, elite evangelicals began shifting hard with the culture to focus on gender and race. Thus, in 2016 and throughout Trump's presidency, the evangelical elite apparatus relentlessly attacked Trump and his evangelical voters for being insufficiently sensitive to cultural prejudice. Uh, and I, I, I think you uh, you covered this part, uh, Dominic. I just mm-hmm. I find um, I just find this fascinating and, and it really is uh I just feel like a historically accurate uh, timeline of how we got where we are. And it really in using this this Aaron Wren language, I'm really a big fan of because I really do think it I think Obergfell certainly was the decision. And we put a rainbow on the White House, you know, and uh, now Christians are the problem because we're the ones that are uh, that are saying, you know, no, homosexuality is wrong. It's a sin. It's not it's not our opinion. It's it's uh, it's the truth because it's what God says. Anyway, exactly. And, and, and I think that's exactly right. So this one is one of those articles that I will repeat myself uh, that would be good to have discussion over. Uh, it, it hits the high points and people who know more history could uh, feed, feed into it. Uh, it would be helpful just to you know, put ministry in context and to show the, the shifts that take place. Even if you don't agree with all the matters, at least you can say, OK, here are these movements. They had their place. They uh, encouraged. In fact, there's a picture, a photograph at, on the main article that shows one of the together for uh, the gospel uh, gra- gatherings in Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, the auditorium, it's a, actually it's a convention center. It's filled to the rafters, literally, uh, with, um, you know, pastors and elders and other people, you know, that in this thing, you know, I, I just looks like be 15, 20,000. Uh, and it was that picture was taken, I think, around uh, maybe 2008 or so. So, it, you know, it, there was it was in terms of touching churches and individuals and uh, then the coalitions together where 
things that were distinctives uh, between denominations were put aside and the bigger items that we could all coalesce around were held held to and bound together and within what uh, 15 years anyway uh it all not it didn't all fall apart but it you know was really affected so uh the, it's a, just a good interesting read to see that this happens and again with my teaching church history you can notice that that uh in every generation the church goes through this within the generations and sometimes multiple generations uh where Things change because of how the church reacts to cultural events and that kind of thing. So, uh, Paul, the, you're, you're right. This is a, why just the title alone was enough to draw people to read it. But I think in reading it, it was shared quite a bit and other people read it. So when it comes out tomorrow in the newsletter, uh, trust that you'll take the time to, to read that. Well, maybe touching on this is uh, number two. Carl Truman's article in uh, First Things, uh, why most uh, Anglican clergy now approve gay marriage and what this means for the future of the church. Uh, he says a recent poll conducted by the Times of London indicates that a majority of Church of England clergy now favor gay marriage. The figures, 53.4% in favor, 36.5% opposed, show a significant shift from 2014. Back then, in the aftermath of the legalization of gay marriage in the UK, only 39% were in favor and 51% were opposed. There are num numerous lessons here. And then uh, Carl, in this article, lists some of those. For instance, he says, first, the old battle lines between conservatives and liberal Christians have changed. In the past, it was the affirmation or denial of the supernatural claims of the Bible, the supreme supremely that of Jesus' bodily resurrection that divided churches. I thought that was a, a really great, you know, capture that uh, Paul, that uh, Carl gave us here, that the battle was always the battle for the Bible and also what it was saying and making the claims for, you know, Christ, did Christ really rise from the dead? Today, it is questions of morality, specific, specifically sexual morality, that are the points of contention. And these and these are of more significance for the broader life of the church within a society to affirm the resurrection might have made you look like a benighted fool, but societies generally tolerated benighted fools to oppose our current Western culture regime where sexual identity is key to personal value is to deny the humanity of fellow citizens. The world sees this as deeply immoral act and one that will likely be tolerated uh for uh, not be tolerated forever uh, christians uh, need to understand that this is not an excuse for abandoning biblical teaching on on kind words uh, turning away wrath or on uh, blessing those who curse us but it is to say that we should expect suffering not op-eds in the washington post to be our reward uh so that brings a second lesson so first is the affirmation of denial of the supernatural especially the claims of christ uh, resurrection, the clergy shift on this issue might well be motivated by pastoral intuitions uh, to affirm people. Uh, it is uh, caring, it's a caring vocation and few one hopes enter it with a, a view towards hurting others. Kindness and is the order of the day. Ironically, however, this ship shift buys the immediate possibility of affirmation at a huge long-term 
uh, cost. And so uh, Carl uh, opens that up a little bit more. So basically, he comes down to this in the article. Uh, nor does oh, this change apply only to marriage. Once the sex differences are at the head of, heart of marriage are dismissed as irrelevant, then the basic change has taken place in what we understand human beings to be. Even though the L, the G, and the B in the uh, alphabet of LGBTQ alliance, so the L, G, and the B of that alliance are philosophically at odds with the T and the Q in the importance they ascribe to bodily sexual differences. In fact, they have already surrendered key ground by denying the significance of distinctions between male and female physiology. It is a bait and switch. Biology is irrelevant for sexual activity, but of absolute importance. There seems little reason to hope that the majority of the Church of England priests, having now apparently abandoned their church's traditional teaching on marriage, will find any compelling reason not to do the same on the question of what is a, what a woman is. So he asks the ends up with the last sad irony is that the clergy's acceptance of gay marriage will ultimately achieve nothing more than the acceleration of the death of the Church of England. The world does not want the church's approval. It has managed very well without that for many years and will continue to do so. What the church world wants is the church's capitulation. And however one cares or to dress up these latest findings as pastorally sensitive, as keeping up with the times, as affirming the marginalized, they represent the latest fulfillment of that desire. So um, the history uh, shows, comes back around. In this case, uh, instead of the evangelical movement that we just talked about with the first article, uh, now we're talking about the demise of uh, church and probably the Anglican church and what's going on there is symbiotic of or symbolic of what's taking place in other uh, churches that sometimes are called mainline, but we'll be talking about mainline churches in a minute. And so, uh, Paul, this is a good assessment. It's very, you know, sort of hits um, truthfully on um, evaluating what's been taking place and where does, and as Truman does, he says, where is that going to take the church ultimately uh, in the UK? And, you know, and it, I think it, uh, in each one of these um, problems, you know, there's resistance. There is, uh, and that's what happens. You know, the, the when the church does this, and you know, goes goes into this level of uh, theological liberalism, or you know, whatever you want to call it, there's there's resistance, and there's correction that uh, eventually comes. And uh, so, then that's happening here, and and, and that's going to happen there. I mean, I think of Calvin Robinson over over in uh, the UK. Um, really, uh, really great guy, and he's speaking out on this and, and saying that, you know, there's going to be a, a resurgence of actual biblical Christianity because the Church of England is, you know, gone so far down the slippery slope. Right. Okay, well, number uh, three takes us more from the church to an individual. This is an article by Hans, Hans Fine, The Crushing Yoke of a Deconstructionist Pastor. Uh, where he has the subtext here, pastoring without Jesus is just hopeless. And this is a response to a recent blog uh, post um, that uh, a, ma a minister uh, in uh, Illinois, Alexander Lang, 
wrote a detailed explanation for why he chose to step down as pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And uh, so the, Hans, Hans Fine is giving some critique of it. He says, like so many other modern pastors, Lang's laments, he could no longer endure the typical shepherd sapping um, burdens of the ministry, burdens such as the immense stress of the job and feeling lonely and isolated. Initially, many of the personal challenges Lang described lined up with my own experiences, Hans being a pastor himself, as a parish pastor for 15 years. However, the more Lang described these particular challenges, the less convinced I was that we were sharing the same afflictions. I know what it is like to feel momentarily exhausted at the end of the day after praying with a member in the darkest hour. I know what it's like uh, to feel as though I have nowhere to unload the weight of my parishioners' burdens. While I've been <clears throat> frustrated by the unclear desires or unreasonable demands of idiosyncratic members, I've never felt as though, quote, my boss, close quote, is every person who walks through the door of my community. I only worry about one boss, the triune God. So that sets up, he says, I hear what he's saying, identify, but I, I think I basically take it in a, uh, a different kind of way. He said the, the sta stated aim of Lang's deconstructionist uh, uh, de charge makes it easy to pinpoint why Lang found the pastoral ministry so more, much more exhausting than I do. In describing his compa compassion fatigue, he writes, I know intimate details of their lives. I want to know if they're struggling or making progress. I uh, want to know if I can offer resources to help. Uh, what do you realize is that over time, the accumulation of all that knowledge starts to weigh you down. So Lang sees himself not as an under shepherd called to comfort his sheep, with the message of Christ crucified as a, a Christendom uh, scented uh, psychologist uh, uh, charged with fixing, but with a, a, a Christendom scented psychologist charged with fixing his patients. For pastors, the compassion fatigue problem is easy to solve. Yes, it can be exhausting to carry the sorrows of your people, but the exhaustion fades with every word of scripture reminding me that I don't have to keep that weight. I get to transfer it to the pierced hands of Christ whenever I point my sheep to their good shepherd who has killed their everyday sin and promised to dry their every tear. Lang doesn't uh, want, uh, want to hand this load over to Jesus. No wonder he's exhausted. In fact, he goes on to say that even throughout this whole article, he never even mentions Jesus uh, one time in the whole thing. So, the uh, so in all of this, Lang didn't get worn. Uh, Lang didn't get worn down because he was a pastor. He got worn down because he chose to do something even more difficult: a low rent therapist and low stakes CEO conducting business in the sanctuary of an institution whose Christian heritage he wanted to tear down. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. As Alexander Lang continues his journey of tearing down Christian orthodoxy. I pray he stumbles across the words of Jesus, these words of Jesus, and learns the great paradox of the pastoral office. So at the one time is he's trying to tear down things. He's giving messages, of, trying to give messages of hope. Uh, they're really more therapeutic to his congregation. They don't seem to be responding to that. And so 
he just absorbed it more and more. And I think Hans Fein has put his finger on important uh, description of that um, article that uh, Lang wrote and why he was resigning from his pastor and moving on to something else. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, it's a, uh, you know, I hear this a lot. I've been ordained for over 50 years. So I, I'm when I first read Lang's thing, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I identify with that, identify. But I began to notice, wait a minute. Jesus isn't there. The, the scripture isn't there. The, the word of God and trusting and casting our cares on him. Uh, none of that was there. It was all I need. To, I am responsible to make everybody better and I'm not succeeding and I'm just being worn out. Yeah, pastoring without Jesus uh, is just hopeless is is the byline again. And I, I and also I'm really this is a good article. Um, you know, challenging, you know, the the assertions that were out there as to why he resigned, uh, Lang resigned. Uh, I love that he quotes the about page of the church's website. Um, and he says, uh, let's see here, where is it? Um, yeah, so you go to the about page and you'll see this hardly, uh, you'll see this hardly an oversight. Quote, restorative faith is a progressive Christian movement designed to rescue the Christian faith from antiquated doctrine and recast Christianity in a new light. Quote, and that's uh, then you have another quote. We are here to break down the Christian faith one piece at a time so we can rebuild it into something that is actually worth believing. End quote. My goodness, uh, that 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 right there just really. Uh, stuck out to me that no wonder, you know, no wonder this this pastor became overwhelmed. Um, well, you know, they uh, when I was thinking about that, I thought that was a great quote. I'm glad you read it. The uh, the, the first Reformation of the 1500s uh, was because there was the recapturing of the scripture alone, justification by faith alone, by through grace alone in Christ alone. Uh, and and the, this reconstruction here is doing everything contrary to that so that you don't have the scripture alone you don't have christ alone you don't have faith alone you don't have grace alone uh it's we have to shape christianity into the model uh that we now perceive needs to be in because we can't accept that authoritative model so it goes back to the second article uh where we uh, see that um that rejection of the concepts of of uh, biblical truth the up the that carl truman says is the the denial of the supernatural so if you give up the supernatural then you will become you you, you will fail uh, there's no hope what else are you going to say to your yeah. people so yeah so. i think we need to start coining that for, uh, you know the the republicans have the rhinos the republic uh, the uh, republicans in name only so we need to have the the pinos the pastors in name only what do you yeah, think? That's good. Well, put it on see, a hat. Coin that. Put that trade. Make pastors right great now. again. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Make making pastorate uh, the pastorate great again. Okay. The um, the let's see. Um, number four is can mainline Protestantism be rebuilt? And now this is by Aaron Wren, who we already mentioned, gave us the sort of that three pong um, valuation of. Uh, history uh, of more recent history in the church going back to the 80s coming into the 21st century and uh, he's responding to or reacting to um, Jake Meter uh, wrote a recent uh, interesting piece he says on a topic of great interest to me namely about a call to attempt to create new Protestant 
uh, a new Protestant mainline. Now, the word mainline Christianity or mainline denomination are usually associated with the the churches that were very prominent uh, in in the development of our country, especially the latter part of the 19th century coming into the 20th century. And uh, so you had the main, you know, the Presbyterian body, the Episcopal body, the United Methodist uh, Church, <laughs> the uh, Lutheran uh, bodies. And so you and the Episcopal Church, I think if I didn't say it, uh, in other words, and they were dominant. Everybody was sort of part of a denomination. There were not many independent uh, bodies as we have seen today. So what's going to take that place and meter uh, is de- deal with that in his article and Ren is responding to that. So here he just quotes a couple of things to set that up. So to bring the discussion <clears throat> to Reformed Catholicity and what Reformed Catholic churches can do in our current context, uh, here it is. The old main line is dead. Okay, those are the churches that I listed, or at least some of them. American Catholicism is likely terminal as well, even prior to the plausible turmoil to come under Pope Francis's successor. American evangelicalism is now encountering its own de-churching crisis and loss of influence. The Christian movement in America is thus at crossroads. Something new will need to be built, but I do not think we should build a new evangelicalism. I think we should build a new main line. So move the churches that have been on the main line and uh, you know put replace them with the new group. So what does he propose? The main line should be centered around the EPC, that's Evangelical Presbyterian Church, PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, and ACNA, that's the Anglican Church of North America, with room for the possible addition of Lutheran, Methodist, and Baptist denominations, should um, denominations interested uh, in, in this project emerge from those streams. So there you have it, EPC, PCA, Ghana, some Lutherans, Methodists, and Baptists. Uh, the old main line encompassed the, the Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, Lutherans, Baptists. We currently have Presbyterian and Anglican communions that might plausibly grow into the continuing church vision once um, articulated at the uh, PCA's founding. It remains to be seen if the global Methodists can join this movement. The global Methodists are the churches that are withdrawing from the United Methodist Church and moving into this global Methodism, let alone if the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod can stave off its own demographic collapse, uh, or if a strengthened Baptist communion can emerge from the chaos and corruption currently vexing the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, these are the institutional pieces to watch for then, and then he gives the alphabet soup of the of these churches. So here, Wren then just explores this and uh, responds to it, especially in light of his articulation of what he has observed was the downfall and what we saw in the first article of the rise and fall of the evangelical elite in terms of what should come uh, in its uh, place. So it's quite a bit here. um, But I think it ends up here. He says, I note a large number of at attributes of mainline churches. I both studied and experienced them. Well, one of those is a strong institutionalism. For example, based on my uh, my recent experience, the elements of Meter's proposal are not themes that I see in mainline Protestantism either. The distinctives of this new mainline are not the ones of the old mainline, reparenting the lost 
is not something you associate with Episcopalian for Episcopalianism, for example. He can correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that he used the term, quote, mainline, because he wants to create something that can replace the role that the mainline played in uh, America, according to Bottom's rule, and he that's referring to another author who made some comments about this, which is to supply what some critics called moral ballast to society by having that those weighty churches taking a very prominent place in culture, they provide that moral background and backbone uh, and ballast for society. I don't think Meter uh, aspires to be uh, aspires to be this for all of society in the near term, which isn't realistic today, but rather uh, for a subset of it, perhaps as a kind of culture. But I think Bottoms uh, is completely is complete here. I think he defines the mainline role in society the way he does in part because he wants to create a container that Catholicism could possibly have filled. But while it may not be the mainline, Meter's idea of creating a church counterculture is on point. Uh, you don't have to share all of the sensibilities to see that reparenting the lost has to be a part of effective Christian mission in the future. For example, we need to see much more like this, of people thinking about the way church models need to change for today's social realities. So, Paul, as I just read all this and see that not only was there the rise of this evangelical movement in the early part, the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, now there is how do we realign things? How do we refashion things? And so here's one proposal, uh, creating a new mainline. It may be that, maybe something else. But you can see the whole discussion has now moved away from those coalitions to, you know, recognizing that there's a place for these various denominational distinctions that will provide that, um, I guess, biblical as well as moral ballast for culture in general, as well as reaching out to culture in need of the gospel. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it, part of that is really, you know, you've heard people talk about, you know, we need a Christian economy, uh, if you will, like uh, like a network of, of uh, Christian, you know, economy, you know, just supporting other Christians, that that sort of thing, um, and I, that is just happening naturally, you know, because we're in negative world, and so I think that kind of fits in with what he's talking about, um, because you know we are fast approaching a a world in which, well, I mean, essentially, you know, within my lifetime, um, in the next, you know, twenty thirty years, I, you know, Christians are going to be looked at the way. We maybe look at the Amish, um, although you could probably argue that the Amish are looked at more favorable than, uh, you know, evangelicals right now in, in culture. But, um, you know, not that we're necessarily rejecting the light bulb, but I mean, there is it's just coming to a time to choose, you know, whether you're, you're looking ahead at the, uh, the transhumanism and the merging of biology and technology that, you know, we're going to have to face uh, uh, in the next 50 years for sure, if not sooner. Um, and then you just look at the complete animus that society has for um, the Bible and Christians who still believe in the Bible and that sort of thing. Now, on the other side of that, you know, we really do have a situation where, you know, these uh, red states who are populated by people who claim to be Christians and are voting for legislators that are going down in their local governments and making laws uh, that are 
you know, trying to stop the madness, trying to stop the depravities, you know, really just trying to stop what is a, a sex religion that has been, you know, that's been created. And I, I, that's why I have, you know, a lot of hope uh, about what's going on. If if the states will be left alone to actually govern themselves, you know, you're going to have, you know, places that are essentially, um, I guess, the shire, for lack of a better word, versus the Mordors of California and New York. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, just maybe helpful to go on to the number five, because I think it it's also touching on this in a different kind of way. Uh, by Jacob Leeming, Biblical Love in a World Gone Mad. Now, sort of a subheadline there is sowing in Babylon, because Babylon is the byword that uh, just covers everything that is decadent and deep and dark. You know, the book of Revelation uses that as one of the words to define what every, what uh, is contrary to God, everything that Satan brings to the world, darkness, death. Uh, seeking your own pleasures and so forth. Okay, so sowing in Babylon, that's where we live, in the belly of Babylon. Uh, So biblical love in a world gone mad, and why the message of repentance will always be loving. And because as the church is, you know, we can see from these articles that there is discussion now going on about, well, what will the church now look like? We tried the Young Restless Reform, we tried the, the Gospel Coalition, the Together for the Gospel, um, you know, wh- where where do we go now? How do we sort of refashion ourselves to make sure that this ministry goes forward? And so Leming, uh, Leming says, our present age is one in which love, as as we refer to it, has become so distorted as to be hardly recognizable. Uh, acts of flagrant rebellion against God are gleefully sanctioned in the name of love. Evil is everywhere celebrated, supposedly for the sake of love. Oppression is promulgated. Uh, for the cause of love and lies are disseminated throughout every corner of society under the guise of love. And lest we risk falling into abstraction, what I'm referring to here are things like Toronto's uh, street, streets being filled with all manner of public sexual deviance in the month of June. Lib- of course, that's Pride Month. Libraries suddenly becoming the favorite haunt of uh, bearded cross-dressing weirdos untold numbers of children being murdered and mutilated each year precisely by those who ought to be protecting them. So even so, it continues to be true that despite our culture's myriad distortions of love, love itself remains pure and undefiled. And this is what uh, is because love is the kind of thing that doesn't find its root in shifting human imagination, but rather in the eternal and unchanging character of God. As John reminds us, God is love. Hence, the place we must always begin in order to see what love truly looks like is God himself. He and no other can reveal the nature of love since he is the, there is no other found, fountainhead of love. So what his point is this, this is why the message of, quote, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand will always be the most loving command the world has ever heard and why the call to be whatever you want to be will remain the most damning and unloving. The first accords with the will of God, the second defies it. The first comes from God, the second from the demons, and it's high time Christians learn to tell the difference. So the role of the church in these chaotic times is therefore to testify with as much clarity and courage as God will grant uh, to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are perishing will cry that this is unloving. 
but those who are being saved will by the spirit's power receive the gospel as a fragrance of life so here the jacob leeming is basically saying that the world has taken the word try to co-opt it and appropriate it for themselves and redefine it uh, the church has in the scripture what god says so the triune god speaks to it and defines what real love demonstrated in and through the redemptive work of christ and so part of the message then that Lehman's talking about is that we need to say, how did Jesus begin his earthly ministry? According to Mark 1, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, so it was called to, to change and repent. Uh, just in passing, uh, just reading in my own quiet time and uh, going through uh, Jonah again, and I was struck uh, with the message that God sent uh, Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Of course, he ran away first and so forth. Uh, but the when he finally gets to Nineveh and he goes through it, it says a three days journey that he preached, I guess, on the corner going uh, on corners throughout Nineveh because it was a great, a big city, we're told. Uh, he, he says, repent, uh, yet 40 days and God will um, come and bring judgment. And so it was a message of judgment, repent. And Jesus then picks it up in the new testament and says that was jonah's message is the message that i have and basically um that the if the people in jonah uh they if the ninevites repented at the preaching of jonah which was repent because god is going to bring judgment says that that needs to be something uh, that we speak as well but our context of our present culture is no you that's too harsh too judgmental uh, and it's not going to, it's not going to work. So it is something for us to think about here that uh, biblical love in a world gone bad is to really speak the truth to people who need to hear that God really does. And he produced judgment in and through Christ uh, on a cross and then also raised him from the dead. So I think it's a, another sort of a different way of looking at it, which really is helpful to what do we want the mainline churches to be preaching and what do we want the evangelical churches? What is, what do we speak into culture uh, today? Well, it's the old, old truth and the old, old story. Just an observation. I find it really comical uh, that you, you brought up Jonah and you said, of course he runs away and, and so forth. Anyway, Nineveh, you yeah. skipped over the best part. You skipped, you completely skipped over the whale. Oh. Uh, it's like it's like yada yada. You hear people uh, yada yada yada. Yeah, right. <laughs> you oh skipped, yeah, yeah. You skipped over the best part. That's funny to me. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> you, you know what? I should have. You're right. I was, you know, trying not to preach a sermon on that. Oh, Sunday. I know, I know. But but it's interesting. You know, the 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 great fish, we'll call it. There uh, is uh, was a judgment on Jonah for running away, and so he understood judgment when he preached it so he could have preach it with some conviction so that's we just true need to, we need to <laughs> just recognize that so god sort of uh, you know got brought jonah up short and then um he uh then he then jonah could with conviction say look god's serious about this stuff and the people in Nineveh listened and they all repented and jesus raises it as a point of um look uh, judgment was preached revival broke out and belief broke out. Okay, well, just number six now brings us to a review of uh, Rosaria Butterfield's recent book, Five Lies Are um, Our Anti-Christian Age of Our Anti-Christian Age. Uh, Don't believe culture's lies about men and women by Andy Nacelli. 
And so it's a, a long, long review of her of, uh, uh, Rosaria Butterfield's recent book. Uh, he starts out by saying Rosaria Butterfield used to be a lesbian activist who lived with a woman partner until severed as while serving as a tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. Uh, now she is a Christian who is married to a Presbyterian pastor and who invests her time as a homeschool mom and grandmother and as a hospitable neighbor in North Carolina. When she wrote uh, this book for um, of this book, her four adopted children spanned ages 16 to 34. The title of her new book specifies that she is warning against five lies of our anti-Christian age. So you all, that's already out. So this is a review of that, Five Lies of an Anti-Christian Age by Rosario Butterfield. So I need to repeat a few times so that you're listening, but you'll see it in the um, newsletter tomorrow when it comes out. And so uh, Andy Nacelli in this uh, book just gives, basically states her thesis. Here is one way to summarize uh, Butterfield's uh, thesis. Don't believe our cultural lies about God's design for men and women. So that's the primary part. She represents five lies and explains what all of these lies have in common is they don't think that God had a plan and purpose when he created men and women. Uh, at the root of the lies is what she calls our nation's uh, re reigning idol, a formidable monolith represented by the letters LGBTQ and the symbol plus. So there's your summary of what the whole book's about. Then she labors in. So what kind of lies? So, uh, that lie one is homosexuality is normal. And so we, she he goes through and explains some of this, uh, what the lie is. And the truth is our sinful feelings do not determine our core identity. Uh, number Lie number two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Okay, we just talked about that, Paul, with reference to the uh, preaching a, a repentant believe you know, the, uh, Christ. So is a spiritual person kinder uh, than being a biblical Christian? The lie is a spiritual person finds true spirituality uh, inside himself or herself. Everything share is a single divine power. Distinctions and hierarchies are abusive and violent. The truth, there are two realities, God and not God. Uh, there are two kinds of people, those who love the triune God and those who defy him. It is not kind to be a person uh, who misleads others to defy the creator by living contrary to reality. Lie number three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Uh, that is uh, not healthy. And she said, the truth is the traditional biblical view about God's design for men and women is true, good, and beautiful. Lie number four, transgenderism is normal. That's a lie. Your sex is not it, the, the lie is your sex is gender fluid. The biological sex you are born with as, uh, are born as does uh, necessarily uh, and does not necessarily correspond to your gender. That's part of the lie. The truth is God created mankind as either male or female. Now, there are only two sexes, male and female. God designed males to be masculine and God designed females to be feminine. It's sinful for a man to be effeminate or for a woman to be masculine. Number five, line number five, modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds back women. 
So that's the lie. It's oppressive of the lie says to call women uh, to dress and act differently than men. The truth. A godly woman is a modest woman. Butterfield approvingly quotes uh, how Martha Peace and Kent uh, Keller define modesty and immodesty and so forth and puts that there. So he, uh, he just goes through those things because and summarizes what she teaches in the book. But you have to get the book. OK, that's the important thing. Then he comes down to 10 features. He said, I appreciate about uh, Rosaria's book. Uh, and uh, he mentions that, for instance, Butterfield addresses dragon the ideologies that are pervasive in our culture. Uh, in the um, forward, Kevin DeYoung says, don't follow the great dragon. That's what this book is all about. As a theologian who has written uh, biblical theology of snakes and dragons, I agree with that the dragon theme is a good framework for thinking about how we are doing when we are warned against LBGTQ ideology. The, um, and so the dragon theme is important, you know, from the serpent in the garden all the way to the dragon in Revelation uh, chapter 12 and following. Uh, number two, Butterfield weaves, uh, he appreciates moving autobiographical stories throughout the book. She also, he appreciates that she's, Butterfield's confident humility saturates the book. Don't mistake Butterfield's confidence for pride. Her heart throughout the book is to proclaim this message. This is, he says, is my par paraphrase. God, the sovereign creator, brilliantly and beautifully designed men and women. We should obey what he tells us. We should live according to his design. We shouldn't believe lies. He appreciates the fact that Butterfield also previously used preferred pronouns to be hospitable using LGBTQ plus vocabulary such as homophobia and calling reparative theology a heresy. She wrote about this online earlier. Than, there's a link to that. And the book goes into more detail. In fact, there's another article coming up on using preferred, um, so-called preferred pronouns. So anyway, he goes on. So there's a heavy dose, uh, real deep dive into this book. So just reading this review will prompt you to immediately order um, these books, uh, this book, and um, and use it as a, a point of discussion. And this is, to me, as I read this, Paul, I see this is a turnaround from, because remember, we were caught off guard. Uh, 2018, remember, we've talked about this uh, many times on this podcast, that that was the watershed year because of Revoice. And most in the church weren't ready with all the terminology and all the nuances of scripture and the teachings of scripture to be able to grasp immediately. Since that time, we've had a wake up call. People have come to understand it. They've studied, there've been good uh, uh, articles, a good study report from the Presbyterian Church in America and uh, helpful teachings from uh, Rosaria's uh, former book. And now this one that we have here along with others. So. You know, we we are in that learning curve and we've learned and uh, this this is saving the church from itself to buy into and be co-opted by the world. So, Paul, I think it's really a healthy book. I encourage everyone to get a copy and read yeah, it. I definitely want to get a copy and read it. And again, the title is Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. This is Rosaria Butterfield 
Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And one of the things in this review, um, one of the things that um, Nacelli, Andy Nacelli says, hang on, let me scroll back down here to this highlighted portion. It's a long article. You're right, it's extensive. Uh, book review. Butterfield is an older woman who wisely and straightforwardly addresses younger women, and that 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 right there, I think, is is uh, is good. You know, I mean, I know the messenger shouldn't matter, but we live in an age where uh, where it does. You know, women are more easily triggered if they're getting uh, instruction from um, a man. You know, this day and age. But she begins the book. Quote, for young single women, I hope that you will aspire to be faithful and fruitful Christian wives, that is, to be helpers, wise counselors, and devoted homemakers to a godly man raising children to the glory of God. God created men and women in marriage to do different and complementary things. Husbands lead, protect, and provide, and wives submit, nurture, and keep the home. God's design for women determines our roles and our priorities. End quote. That candor, he writes, is refreshing particularly at a time when Christians are gun-shy to say something like that without immediately qualifying it, lest you might offend someone such as unmarried women or feminists. Mm. Anyway, definitely exactly. want to check this book out. Yep, and that's when this is one time to uh, have, if you have a book club or you're looking for something that uh, have a discussion in a small group, then this definitely uh, is the book to uh, to read. Okay, number seven, why you shouldn't use preferred pronouns. Mentioned that from Rosaria, and this is um, an other the ideological language. John, Jonathan Van Maren, he says, the forced evolution of language is a key aspect of the LGBT movement's um, colonization of culture. Uh, those who paying attention will have noticed that all sorts of new terms have cropped up in the past few years, and that's another reason why you need... Uh, Rosario's book to get that big picture overview so that you're not afraid to um, assert yourself because now you'll be equipped with uh, uh, good arguments and clear rational arguments as well. So in the last few years, new pronouns, neo pronouns, new genders and more. These terms are not a part of the natural evolution of language, but are a top down imposition dictated by ideologies to the elite class. Um, to obediently begin using them in politi politics, academia, and the press. One of the most succinct responses to this shift uh, in language came from the late comedian Norm MacDonald when he was attempting to explain to another comedian what the definition of the term cisgender is. Cisgender is a term used by activists to describe a male who identifies as male, or as Norman put it, it's a way of marginalizing a normal person. I really was caught up by that, Paul, that, you know, that uh, uh, how that comes around, you know, that they, the word cisgender is sort of, where'd that come from? Uh, because it had to be made up. So it goes through here and how different groups have uh, adopted uh, frameworks or fallen to prey because you don't want to offend. Another theme through all these articles is we're afraid of, being offense and obviously we shouldn't be going out there blatantly just seeking to offend but there comes a time when we have to hold to our perspective to our framework so what we speak should come out of our conceptual framework uh biblical and otherwise um and if somebody in another part of culture wants to have different language then they they could they're free to use it if they want to but the we don't have to buy into that so he, Jonathan Van Maren, um, mentions that 
Uh, but I'll admit uh, that in this space, I frequently uh, emphasized uh, frequently emphasized the identity of various transgender identified people by using what I thought would be clarifying phrases such as biological male or biological female. Riley Gaines, a female swimmer who competed against Thomas, uh, that's Lee Thomas, Leah Thomas, and has since become an advocate for sex segregated spaces and women only sports teams, that's referring to uh, Riley Gaines taking that position, recently made some comments that have made me rethink that usage. Even the phraseology gained observe, gains observed siege too much territory uh, to the trans activists. And here's the quote, the whole term of calling ourselves biological females, I think is so crazy. And it took me a while to come to this conclusion uh, really because it is true, Gaines said, we are biological females, but adding the word biological or cis, like in cisgender, uh, is it which just that means normal? I'm just going to throw that right. in. Yeah, cis means normal. Right. Is admitting there is an unbiological alternative, uh, and there is not. We are not biologically females. Well, we are, but I'm done referring to myself as a biological female. I'm done with the nonsense. I'm done with all with the pandering. So she's standing up for this and beginning to prevail a little bit. So Van Maren says, Gaines is right. And I hadn't thought about it that way. It isn't that biological males don't exist. It's just that biological male is only one kind of male. Well, sex and gender are not, as the trans activists claim, separate things. A few years ago, I would never have thought to include the biological qualifier. And the reason I have recently, in response to the activist manipulation of language, uh, I am now with Gaines on this one. So so the title again, why you shouldn't use preferred pronouns and other ideological language uh, by Ben Naren, I think really is uh, really helpful. It gives stuff and it goes right along with everything about the lies that Rosario Butterfield talks about in her book. Yeah. And, and Rosario Butterfield earlier this year, she was she made the top 10 list in a blog post she made about how she used to use preferred pronouns, you know, out of respect or whatever. But then how she came to became convicted that it was, uh, you know, sinful to do so, um, and, and, you know, bearing. I don't know if she said bearing false witness, but I, I read another article recently about about that, how, you know, you're actually, you know, you're basically promoting lies uh, when you're, you know, going around using preferred pronouns. So. Anyway. Okay, and then number eight, um, and maybe this is an undergrounding of it. I I read this article a number of times in preparation for the uh, podcast, and uh, now I'm seeing it with the flow of what we've been talking about, and that is the Mormonization of American Christianity. Uh, most of the Christians I polled, this is by Shane Rosenthal, most of the Christians I polled ended up describing faith as a feeling or experience. Though we don't find this language in the Bible, we do find it in the writings of Joseph Smith. So how has Mormonism uh, subtly or overtly you know, affected how we think? He goes on, in 1835, just a few years after the initial release of the Book of Mormons, Joseph Smith published a supplemental volume called, the Doctrine, uh, called Doctrine and Covenants, in which he claimed to have received the following revelation from God. He says, cast your mind upon the night that you cried upon me with your heart that you might know concerning the truth of these things and on it would go what it was focusing on was 
that bring, it was a burning in the bosom. There was a feeling there, the heart was moved and the focus is then on this internal experience. What's fascinating, um, Shane Rosenthal said, is that last year when I conducted a poll of nearly 100 Christians at a, a variety of different events here in St. Louis area, the majority of those I interviewed ended up describing faith as a kind of subjective feeling or experience. When I discussed this topic in uh, one of his podcasts, I mentioned the fact that in my own study of this issue, I wasn't able to find a single occurrence of the word feeling anywhere uh, near the word faith in most English Bible translations. When I searched for uh, different words, the verb to feel, and submitted and substituted alternatives for the word faith, such as faithful, belief, believer, I still couldn't find a single passage in which faith and feelings were within 200 words of each other. So <clears throat> what he is saying is that we're putting our focus on the, uh, you know, the feeling uh, part of it. He says, but when I look at the claims of the apostles recorded throughout the New Testament, they appear to follow the same approach rather than appealing to their own feelings or internal experiences. And much like what Joseph Smith is reported to have done, they continually point pointed to that which they heard and their uh, ear they uh, and with their ears and saw with their eyes and touched with their hands and acts 2 22 peter says men of israel hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested to you by god's mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst as you yourself know in verse 36 of acts 2 he went on to say for certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah, not because God will reveal this to you, each of us, in some kind of personal encounter, but because Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were seen by numerous eyewitnesses and also happened to be foreseen uh, by the Hebrew prophets of old. But what is what if this approach we actually find throughout the Bible? Then why is there so many are so many Christians in this day following the apologetic methodology of Joseph Smith? If personal experience determines truth, then what should we tell the Mormon missionary who arrives at our doorstep? Would it be uh, would it help if we would then perhaps um, uh, would it help them uh, if we told them that perhaps Christian bosoms burn significantly higher temperatures than Mormon bosoms? <laughs> well, I like that phrase. Uh, how do we get here? If you're interested in exploring this, you know, you need to maybe study on this matter more is we give some. Uh, literature here that you can read on. So the the factual data uh, precedes the emotional responses uh, that we have here. Uh, and so we don't want the Mormonization of American Christianity, which is, you know, he, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, then someone can say, well, that's this is what lives in my heart. And yeah. we have to be careful, you know, within that and uh, ground it in what the scripture does in God's redemptive work in and through Christ, which has uh, been demonstrated uh, historically and through the signs and wonders that God gave throughout redemptive history. Yeah, and it's good that uh, Shane Rosenthal here, you know, makes this connection to Mormonism, um, because I think that certainly would raise, uh, it's, it's, it's going to get some, the, the attention, you know, it's going to get your attention, like, wait, what is this? But the, the reality is that anytime you deviate from, you know, orthodoxy. I mean, it, Mormonism isn't the only false religion out there that has to do with experience and feelings, you know, all the rest of them, all the rest of the, you know, the different religions out there basically do the same thing. 
So, right. um, but yeah, specifically highlighting the Mormonization, you know, probably designed to kind of get the attention of maybe some progressive, uh, more progressive leaning, you know. Well, the Christians. world in general is more feeling oriented. That's the reason when we talk about uh, what love is, you know, it, it's that's the sort of summary word that feels very, you know, it's sentimental as opposed to being anchored in God's love that we have because of Christ. And and what did Christ have to go through because God saw the world, he brought judgment. And we don't like to talk that way because it seems so counterintuitive in our cultural ears to hear that. But, uh, you know, that's something that we need to uh, really consider. Okay, then number nine by Kim Riddlebarger, a primer on reformed liturgics. This is a part one. There are a number of parts to this. Lessons from the past applied to the present. And the focus primarily here that Kim Riddlebarger has for reformers, recovering the gospel also meant recover, recovery of proper worship. And so in this particular article, he focuses on that. He starts out by saying the reformers understood the recovery of the gospel was directly connected to proper Christian worship. John Calvin, for one, saw his own conversion and subsequent work of reformed title tied directly to the removal of all forms of Roman idolatry, especially the mass from Christian worship. The centrality of the gospel to the life of the church must be made manifest in pure worship of God. This meant a word centered liturgy in which biblical texts were preached upon biblical exhortations and commands were made clear and biblical promises made to the people, uh, the people of God, who were to be read uh, for their comfort and assurance. As one writer put it, the recovery of the gospel in the Reformation was ultimately a worship war, a war against the idols, a war for the pure worship of God. Our worship must reflect our gospel and our gospel must define our worship. And so from that premise, he then outlined some of the things that happened. Is so for instance, the reformers sought to reform the church's worship uh, by affirming uh, uh, sola scriptura and how it uh, it defines worship. Uh, reform worship is Catholic, but not in the Roman sense, the word Catholic meaning universal. Um, so he refers to, for instance, uh, church father Cyprian, who was uh, from Carthage, uh, present day Tunisia. You can no longer have God, your father, if you do not have the church for your mother. And Calvin explained Cyprian's comment this way. He said, let us learn even from this simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For they're referring to the church as the mother. So for there is no other way to enter into life unless this is the mother conceives in her womb and gives birth, nourishes at her breast. And lastly, unless she keeps us under care and guidance until putting off our mortal flesh, we become like angels. Our weaknesses, uh, our weakness does not allow us to, de to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, we cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or salvation, as Isaiah and Joel testify. So that's quite a word uh, built on Cyprian's uh, statement. But uh, in this article, he also talks about that reform worship is Trinitarian. Uh, reform liturgies are packed with Trinitarian references, prayers to Almighty God, the Father in heaven, through the Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity really comes out hard. Reform worship is Christ-centered. It means that most of all the following should be found in a Reformed Church Lord's Day worship. 
and incorporate it into the liturgy. Uh, you, you know, starts uh, with Isaiah and how he sees the God high and lifted up and so forth. And he and Vernal Barker explains that fully. Um, Reform worship seeks to be through the Holy Spirit. It does not mean charismatic type worship service in which the spirit supposedly leads worshipers to profound experiences apart from the preached word and the person of Jesus Christ. Our liturgies ought to be based upon these things, those uh, those things through the spirit work, which the spirit works through word and sacrament. And again, he explains that carefully. So just a very helpful article to say, what does coming to Christ mean? What does coming to understand the Reformation mean and how it changes uh, how we look at life and the lens by which the church's ministry, especially worship, is to take place. So, Paul, this is uh, another good article. You mentioned that you're in a uh, membership class that everyone's taking together in your church plant there, and uh, this may be something for uh, you all to at least hear all the people in that class to hear. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> now, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, I mean, we were, went over a lot of this last night uh, that's in this article. Um, but I want to expand on you. You mentioned, you know, the reform worship seeks to be through the Holy Spirit. I really loved his expansion on that. He says, according to John, uh, our confession of sin is uh, is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8, quote, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, end quote. This is closely related to the fact that preaching is said to be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, quote, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, end quote. It is the Spirit who convicts us of our sin, confirms to us that the promises God makes to his people in his word are true, and that they apply to each one of God's people. I thought that was really encouraging. Right. Okay. And then we come to number 10. Um, and star Richard Dawkins, uh, who is well known, I guess, uh, at least culturally, as uh, an atheist. He claims that without any um, hesitation. Richard Dawkins asks an important question. And here is my answer by Murray Campbell. And he goes, says on here, I can imagine Richard Dawkins sitting in the back now at the row of the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill in Acts 17, stern-faced and shaking head and leading a small chorus of skeptics. Richard Dawkins is continuing his mission to evangelize people out of Christianity and religion altogether and to secure his message in a world without hope. Today in a video message, and the message is, uh, the video is uh, highlighted here, he asked, and this is the question that, uh, uh, that Murray is bringing up. He says, do you want to be comforted by a falsehood? That's an interesting question. I've never actually heard anybody say it that way. Do you want to be comforted by a falsehood? It's a good question and an important one. Does anyone want to find consolation in fabrication? Does anyone want to pour all their hopes into a dead end? For Professor Dawkins' death is, of course, the dead end. And with nothing beyond and no light to give hope, to either the dead or those who are left behind. So he quotes uh, Dawkins as saying, when your brain decays, there is absolutely no reason to suppose your consciousness will continue. So the grounds of plausibility, the balance of plausibility is heavenly in the favor of those uh, there or though 
there have been no survival uh, after death, and there's nothing that is something that we can live with. Um, it's not at all horrifying a prospect when you think about it, uh, because we think, as Mark Twain said, I've been dead for a billion years before I was born and never suffered the smallest inconvenience. Okay, so that's a very hopeful uh, passage, I guess. So I suspect that Dawkins' answer will arouse applause and retweets from fans and devotees uh, and with uh, satisfied, uh, come with a satisfied amen, which is sort of uh, tongue in cheek, I said. Leaving aside for a moment the question of whether he's right or not, his answer isn't particularly consoling. Dawkins says that he finds solace in the finality of being no more, but I suspect uh, most people, including a lot of atheists, are not so convinced. Our intellectual commitments, uh, whether theistic or atheistic, come under a sudden assault when death approaches and when a loved one is lowered into the grave. There is a longing for death not to win. There is a palpable hope that life may continue and love to be uh, to be any kind of final uh, death. So what um, Murray uh, Campbell is saying uh, here is in terms of the uh, answer is to point to the solidity and like one of our former articles here of the resurrection from the dead. What I found interesting, he says, is Dawkins' tweet is how he relies heavily on the Bible reasoning in order to muster an argument against God and the notion of life beyond death. Take, for example, this paragraph from first uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, this is chapter 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And that goes on and it ends. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The apostle and subsequent Christian theologians, scientists and believers in, the general, in general, all understand the implausibility of resurrection and understand the single event of history that dumbfounds the Sadducees and Epicureans of every age. So it's worth noting that Paul's words were written within 20 years of the event of the surrounding uh, that surrounded Jesus' death in Jerusalem. He even says to his readers that many of eyewitnesses are still alive. Uh, go and talk with them. We are not; they are not the words of someone covering up evidence and trying to commit fraud on the public. The resurrection. It's a public event and it's open to investigation. So in answering the question, do you find solace in um, and comfort by a falsehood? Uh, and the falsehood is, do you really believe what the Bible says is true about God himself and about uh, redemption, about uh, especially the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Uh, and if you find solace, you can join Dawkins' uh, in being hopeful and living your per life of purpose, but not grounded in anything other than yourself. And one day your brain will just disintegrate and go to dust. Yeah, I mean, just really, uh, I'm just struck by the sadness and the, uh, you know, the the, I, the sadness I feel for, for for people like Dawkins who uh, promoting this this prideful just nonsense and they're in their unbelief and it's just mm -hmm. it's just sad because they they really they don't know they don't know what they are doing yeah and but notice the presentation as one of the other articles said is not well you you just don't feel right if you just get the right feeling everything will be fine now it points to a historical event of redemptive work of christ uh that gives the the ground of hope and that's what our message has to be 
All right, well, Paul, the come to the end of our top 10 list of the Aquila Report on September 18. Tomorrow, the September 19, you'll receive the newsletter in your inbox. If you haven't signed up to get the newsletter, uh, you can just go to the Aquila Report as you listen to this podcast. And uh, right there on the page, and I think on the right-hand side, there's a place you can just click and uh, put your name in, and it'll automatically put you on the list. And we don't sell the list to anyone. It's just for us to communicate with you, uh, the faithful and loyal readers. So uh, we just appreciate you listening into the Aquila Report and Week Review. We appreciate your reading the Aquila Report. Trust that we will continue serving the uh, church well with articles that help and stimulate our thinking so that we might be more faithful in our walk with the Lord. Uh, Until the next time, we pray the Lord will bless you with his word that you'll be enriched by the Spirit.